This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Hannah Holloman to discuss her new book, Dust Bowls of Empire, Imperialism, Environmental Politics, and the Injustice of Green Capitalism. Dr. Holloman argues that the Dust Bowl of the 1930s cannot be understood in isolation from erosion elsewhere in the world, and that responses created by capitalists to these kinds of uh, environmental dilemmas will continue to be inadequate to the task of solving climate change. Dr. Holloman, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me, Zev. I'm very happy to be here with you and to talk about my book. So I am an assistant professor of sociology at Amherst College, and I teach in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology and also in the Department of Environmental Studies. And my work, as you are, as we're going to talk about today, is mostly focused in social theory, but with an emphasis on developments in environmental sociology. And most recently, I've been working on the intersection of environmental politics, imperialism, white settler colonialism. And um, I'm also doing um, my more recent work is really focused on the solutions to some of the issues that I outline in this book. Tell us a little bit about your graduate education. Where did you go to school? So I went to the University of Oregon. I, I chose mm. that university, or I really wanted to join that program because they have several environmental sociologists that were doing work exactly like I wanted to be trained to do. And so that's where I studied. It was a wonderful environment to develop my theoretical understanding and methodological, methodologically and philosophically, the department really fit my values and needs. So in terms of this project, and this book is Dust Bowls of Empire, what led you to it? So I'm actually from Oklahoma. So I'm from one of the original Dust Bowl states. And I started looking into the Dust Bowl because I was interested in the development of water planning and the conflicts over water um, in the Southwest and in Oklahoma between the tribes and the state, between the states um, like Texas and Oklahoma, um, and between the states and federal government. And I was interested because, I don't know if you know, but with climate change, um, that region is expected to experience increased aridification. They're having really a lot of um, problems with water shortages and longer lasting and more extreme droughts. So in 2012, 
for example, every county in the state of Oklahoma was in a serious drought and it was declared um, and, and it had to receive, receive disaster funds. So I started looking into the history of modern water planning and I was also interested in Dust Bowl history for a lot of different reasons. But as I went back to study the period, I began to realize that all of the historical narratives that exist and the official discourse around the Dust Bowl um, really left out communities like the one that I'm from, which is, um, I'm from the Muscogee Creek Nation capital. It's called Okmulgee, Oklahoma. But all of the Dust Bowl narratives really focus on um, basically the plight of the white settlers. They focus on that particular region. Um, they don't focus on the sort of broader context of um, the global expansion of imperialism and colonialism at that time and what was happening in the rest of the world. And so I realized that um, we really needed, we hadn't really learned the lessons of the Dust Bowl properly in part because we didn't have a very good story um, about why it happened and when it happened. And um, especially a lot of the social issues or what I call the social drivers um, were left out. So tell me a little bit about what the research process for this looked like. So after having read all of the existing Dust Bowl literature, I started to take sort of knowledge I had of um, literature from the period we call the New Imperialism from 1870 to 1914, and my understanding of the um, sort of massive social and ecological changes associated with that period and tried to resituate the Dust Bowl on the U.S. Southern Plains in that context. To do that, um, well, one of the things that really stood out to me as missing from the Dust Bowl literature was the sort of broader discussion of um, ecological transformation associated with colonialism in the period that led up to the 1930s. And so I had some familiarity with that history, but to really get a picture of what was going on at that time, I did a really deep dive into um, a, a lot of underutilized historical documents, um, government reports, newspapers from the time period leading up to the Dust Bowl, um, all kinds of other like um, farmers' magazines and things like that. And what I was trying to show was that the problem of soil erosion, which is treated in the Dust Bowl literature, as something as a problem that was a, a, you know a unique fate to a unique fate to the Southern Plains region was actually a global problem. And through looking at all of these historical documents, it's it's so clear that with the expansion of um, colonialism and cash crop agriculture from 1870 to about 1930, that there was it, it was understood sort of globally as soil degradation was understood globally as a major crisis that was accompanying these developments. And so you had um, policymakers, government officials, you had um, people writing for farmers magazines, you had scientists all talking about this as it developed. And, and none of those stories sort of made it into contemporary Dust Bowl literature. And so a lot of the research process was looking into like pulling all of those historical documents to just give a sense of how the problem of soil erosion was being discussed at the time in, in kind of trans-imperial terms. And um, then I also, in, in later, for later chapters of the book, really try to, 
trace the connections between the environment, I mean, what becomes a kind of the early environmental movement, trace its origins in that period all the way through to contemporary environmental politics. So let's dive into the meat of the book. You present, you open your first chapter with uh, this observation from Eric Hobsbawm that the 20th century was a century of extremes, but then you complicate that by suggesting that the 21st century is a, is a century of extremes as well. What are you looking at in this chapter? So in this chapter, a, a lot of scientists are telling us that we're confronting what they call the New Dust Bowl era, that the combination of climate change, freshwater scarcity, and soil degradation and erosion are leading us into conditions um, that look a lot like the Dust Bowl. And so in this chapter, I really try to ex- explain, and I think a lot of people are familiar with this because there are headlines every day in the news about how climate change is progressing much faster than scientists originally anticipated and the problems are um, associated with that are more extreme than were originally anticipated. You're hearing more stories about, you know, extreme drought in the world. You don't hear as much about soil erosion, but it's it affects now 90% of global agricultural land. And in the past 40 years, we've actually lost a third of arable land to soil degradation and land use changes. So I really try to um, give a picture of where we are today in terms of the ecological crises, especially with respect to the land, climate, and um, fresh water. But I also try to link that to the kinds of um, political and social issues that we're confronting today because they're connected. And that's another thing that I feel like is missing from a lot of discussions of the Dust Bowl is like these extreme ecological crises we're confronting are, are possible because of the extreme levels of inequality that we see in the world today. And, you know, there's an extreme politics that, that, basically got us to the into the situation that we're in. And so I talk about global inequality and how that has grown over the past um, few decades and link that to the expansion of these global ecological crises. And the reason that I say it's we're in an age beyond extremes is that when Eric Hobsbawm was talking about the 20th century and he called it the age of extremes, I mean, he was talking about cataclysmic, cata, cataclysmic wars the abyss between rich and poor and so on. But now what we're confronting is really, and and this isn't just my interpretation, this is what the scientists are telling us, a, a truly existential crisis. We're pushing the earth system out of the stable conditions in which human society developed and flourished. And and that's why scientists have said we're they're actually considering um, whether we've moved into a completely different geological epic. And, and so they talk about the Holocene as the sort of era in which human society could develop. It was the era in which the earth system had stable conditions that allowed us to develop agriculture and, and, and sed- you know, sedentary societies and so on. And now they're saying we've moved into a new era they're calling the Anthropocene or Anthropocene. And they're basically this era is characterized by human economic activities impacting the planet on a, on a scale rivaling geological forces. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, so it's, it's a very different, um, we're confronting a really different set of choices now than we were even a few decades ago in the 20th century. And that's why I say it's an age beyond extremes. And 
the decisions we make now, um, there was a, a great article that I read that really laid it out by a group of scientists who said the decisions we make now are going to have an impact on the planet and on our living conditions, not just for the next few decades or the next few centuries, but, but for multiple millennia. So I think when we're taught saying, when I say an age beyond extremes, it really is beyond anything that we've um, referred to as extreme in the past. And obviously the people who are most impacted are those who've already been vulnerable um, under stable climactic conditions. And um, these changes in the environment are, are making vulnerable communities even more um, at risk. And so that I really try to tie all of that together and show that um, this is what we're dealing with. It's not, so when people talk about we're living in a new Dust Bowl era, it, that's not an exaggeration at all. And it's, and it's not hyperbole to say that all life is really under assault at, at this moment. So your second chapter, and I, I enjoyed this I mean, because I'm familiar with some of the history, but it, it, it complicates sort of the standard Dust Bowl narrative that's presented in a lot of, especially sort of surveys of U.S. history. What are you doing in this chapter? So in, in this chapter, I do talk a lot about the existing Dust Bowl literature. So I talk about the temporal um, delineation of most um, Dust Bowl literature, where the narrative really starts with the arrival of white settlers on the plains. I also talk about the geographical scope of most literature, where scholars are really focused on um, what we think of as the original Dust Bowl region, which includes um, parts of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. And some analyses actually look at the entire Plains region. They might look all the way up into, um, they might be talking about the Plains all the way into Canada. So I talk about, um, I, I give a good overview of, of that literature and some of the main causes um, of the Dust Bowl that, that existing scholarship identifies. And, and some of those are, for example, that agriculture, which is was suited for a human region, was imported into a semi-arid region, and that, that that was part of the problem. So you had unsuitable agricultural techniques, or you had um, um, unsuitable government policy, and so on. Donald Worcester, the environmental historian, I think gives the best, most systematic overview of what happened on the plains um, of, of all the literature that I read. He really looks at the systemic economic pressures that drove farmers to plant um, when the land really needed to rest and to expand their herds when they really needed to um, decrease sort of grazing on the plains. And he looks at the, the broader economic pressures and what was happening with agricultural agriculture nationally at the time. So I think he gives one of the best overviews, but even he leaves out the global context. And so you see what's happening on the plains in these very regionally specific terms. And people talk about the optimist, optimism of the plainsmen, that they just, you know, even even in the face of drought, just kept praying for rain. Um, we talk about them being unskilled and sort of just so um, either in need of or, um, yeah, sort of under so much pressure to make money that they just completely... And some of the um, people from that time period, farmers say, you know, we, we raped the land, we got all we could from it. And so that's, so I talk about those narratives and basically say, we've left out the entire sort of global situation. 
which leaves out the story even of that um, ex- westward expansion is not treated like colonial expansion. It's like the settlers are just these sort of the dispossessed from some other part of the world or some other part of the country that have just come to make a living. But nowhere in those narratives are the people who are already living on the plains. Um, the stories are, as I say in the book, um, completely whitened. I think they represent um, a, a narrative still within the framework of American exceptionalism. And so I try to show why a global frame is really necessary to understand what happened on the plains and why it happened when it did. Which leads us into your third chapter, which which draws these connections to imperialism, to white supremacy, sort of peels back the curtain on this idea of American exceptionalism. Yes. And so in, in chapter three, I present a completely different um, historical narrative that gets us to the Dust Bowl um, from a very different starting place. So I talk about the new imperialism that took off in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and abolition of slavery. And I don't know how familiar your listeners will be with that time period, but in the 1870s, there was a renewed scramble um, globally by the colonial powers, so by the United States, by Britain, um, and by Europe for land and resources and labor internationally. And so especially in the wake of the abolition of slavery, because the United States was one of the major suppliers of raw materials to the industrial centers of Europe and Britain. And so they were actually concerned that absent the sort of cheap raw materials that slave labor made possible, they were going to need new sources of land, new sources of labor. So this um, massive kind of scramble for to grab uh, and competition between the colonial powers to to grab um, the land that existed after the earlier colonial period really takes off in this in this moment and one of the consequences of that is the expansion of cash crop agriculture around the world and in regions um, that had their own um, sort of methods of production their own economies their own culture um, in relation to the land and so on. So these powers in in grabbing the land also um, destroyed local economies and um, reoriented regional agriculture around the world for cash crop production. And so I talk about that and talk and situate what happened on the plains in that context. So at the same time, the United States was expanding westward after the Civil War, you know, they basically, the, the U.S. government took the military that had been, been fighting the Civil War and, and moved a great number of troops out to West to start basically um, trying to clear the West of, the, of its inhabitants to make way for white settlement in the region. And at the same time that the United States is doing that, um, your, your listeners will probably be familiar with this, they were also waging a war of atrocity against the newly declared Philippine Republic. Um, in this period, the United States seized Hawaii, American Samoa, um, Mariana Islands, Guam, Puerto Rico. So the U.S. was very much caught up in this um, global imperial expansion, the new imperialism, as it was called at the time and as we still call it. And um, so what was happening on the plains was part of this global expansion. It wasn't something exceptional. It wasn't just a natural development of a steady westward um, expansion of the country. 
it was a very con- there was a very conscious drive at this time to expand white territorial control and a competition amongst colonial powers for um, to grab sort of different parts of the globe. Now you note know, um, both in, in your second chapter and elsewhere that once cash crop agriculture is introduced into a lot of these regions, that there's also a growing awareness that this is not a sustainable model. Um, you know, you, I think you pretty effectively demolished the idea, for example, that the Dust Bowl was something that was completely unforeseen because the U.S. Geological Service had been writing about the possibilities of massive soil erosion for decades at that point. But it's going on globally, too. So tell us a little bit about that. Exactly. And that, that gets us to chapter four um, in the book. So I show in this chapter, there are there's actually textbooks today that still say that the Dust Bowl was unforeseen. I, I give some examples in my book. And there are scientists who still, like Ellen Stofan from NASA, when she talks about the Dust Bowl, which she does to try to explain to people the challenges we're confronting with agriculture today in the face of climate change. So she uses the reference of the Dust Bowl and basically says, yeah, we, when we saw it happening, we didn't totally understand why it was happening, but scientists came in and the, we learned about it and the problem was resolved. Um, so this narrative is repeated in a lot of different places, but what I show in chapter four is there is a, there's a long history in agricultural societies of, of understanding the challenge of soil erosion. So that's one point that I make. Like it goes back into ancient literature in ancient Vedic texts and ancient Chinese literature and Roman and Greek um, literature. And this, the settlers and, and policymakers, people who are focused on agriculture, they're familiar with this. It's, all, it's been a problem for a long time. It's something farmers have always dealt with. So the idea that we didn't understand why soil erosion was happening or why it was happening on such a mass scale is, is a, is, doesn't make any sense. And even more than that, like you said, because of this expansion of, of colonialism and imperialism and cash crop agriculture and um, grazing and, and deforestation of all of these different parts of the world um, to to export um, raw materials back to the industrial centers, it created awareness amongst colonial officials that they were wreaking sort of ecological havoc around the world. And they were very concerned about it because ultimately it would serve to undermine their colonial projects if it was allowed to go on unchecked. And so um, Richard Grove, who wrote the classic text, Green Imperialism, he, he does an amazing job showing how the environmental movement really gets its start in the colonial era because of how aggressive the colonial powers um, degraded land around the world. They couldn't, they sort of, they couldn't look kind of in these tropical places as they had done in Roman, you know, they'd really romanticized all of these different parts of the globe and to see them being destroyed and to know, you know, that their activities were causing it um, led to a massive concern with ecological degradation amongst elites, amongst colonial officials, and amongst um, the basically white settlers who were now, who had been kind of sent, were occupying this land and um, were facing challenges because of its degradation. And so in this colonial period, you really have the origins of the conservation movement, and you also have um, the sort of origins of what of mainstream environmentalism as we understand it today. How does that play out in the United States, this growing awareness of a problem? 
So I, I also put in chapter four, I have specific examples from the United States. Like soil erosion was understood as a problem in the United States before, I mean, even during the revolutionary era, George Washington writes about it. Thomas Jefferson writes about it. The original colonies passed laws to address soil erosion and to address even um, soil drift, like kind of early, um, not quite decibel experiences, but early problems with wind erosion associated with um, the expansion of colonial agriculture. And so as, as and, and some writers in the United States even identify westward expansion in part as a consequence of land degradation on the East Coast. So in the Southern United States, like the Piedmont re- region, highly um, degraded, had a massive problem with soil erosion, and so did parts of the Northeast. And so, like I said, some people identified westward expansion in part as a means to deal with land degradation in the East, that there was a kind of land hunger that was a consequence of that. But in the Plains region in particular, there were studies going back to the 19th century that showed that the government had commissioned that showed that that region really couldn't support agriculture, the, the agriculture that some um, officials were, were calling for, were hoping could be developed in the region, and it couldn't support the levels of grazing that some, some people wanted to expand to the region. And once you did have um, that part of the what's now the United States, like open for white settlement, immediately you started to see, as, as cash crop agriculture kind of moved in, you immediately started to see the consequences of having not heeded those warnings. And so there were studies being um, commissioned by the USDA in the Plains region from the late 1800s, the early 1900s, just study after study saying we, we're developing a massive problem here. Um, since the place has been open to white settlement and we have had the expansion of um, cash crop agriculture, agriculture for export, um, it's, it's insatiable. We're, we're destroying the land. And you see that in, in repeated government reports. And you also see it reported in big newspapers as well as farmers' um, periodicals. So the government actually tried to intervene in the Plains region way before the Dust Bowl happened and offer extension services to farmers, including courses on ero- how to deal with erosion and so on. So the problem was well understood by the time um, the 1930s, um, the major droughts came about and you had the massive dust storms that have become famous in everyone's imagination and famous historical reference for the climate change era. But it's absolutely um, not true that they didn't see it coming and that they didn't understand it. And there were a lot of resources being devoted to trying to address it, but not at the scale that would have been required to um, prevent the problem from happening. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and one of the observations you make in this chapter specifically is that um, because the response to these, to these um, environmental crises is being shaped by people who 
explicitly endorse a framework of white supremacy, the response is shaped that way. And that plays out in the subsequent chapter, much of which deals with the response to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Tell us a little bit about that. So one of the things that it is important to understand that as this kind of ecological awareness was developing in the colonial period, one of the major anxieties of the colonial powers was the maintenance of white territorial control. So I give a lot of examples in my book of these um, concert of public officials who were concerned with conservation, but also what it meant about the ability of these countries to maintain white territorial control. And they talk a lot about the white man's burden um, being including both coming to terms with the natives and uh, as well as the soil and plant world. And so when you have this crisis, um, especially in the settler colonial states, you have a lot of concern on the part of officials of what this means, like what, what's going to happen to our project of, of white territorial control if we can't keep people on the land because of this, um, because of soil degradation. And so that's, that's part of the way that the response was sort of framed and, and racialized. But when it came to actual programs and policies, one of the biggest problems was, or, or the ability to deal with it, and some of the um, colonial soil scientists say this, and I quote them in my book, you know, they talk about the fact that basically they, the, the right of owners of private property to do with the land what they please and especially um, white owners of private property to do with the land what they please is considered sacrosanct. And in that context, it was really hard to, um, and also because it's cash crop agriculture, it's agriculture for profit, people have to make money um, year after year. They can't just let the land dress because there's, you know, there's bills to pay, there's taxes, there's investors, um, and so on. But, but soil scientists even back at that time said to really address the problem would require a social and political revolution. We'd have to change the entire sort of reason d'etre for colonial expansion, which was to um, expand cash crop ag- agriculture, um, to access these resources and lands for these particular purposes. And if we can't change that purpose, how can we address the problem? There was also pushback from landowners to have um, government regulation of, of agricultural practice and um, but I think that entire context made it really, and 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 they acknowledge itself, like acknowledge it themselves that we had competing priorities, and ecological priorities couldn't really win over um, the economic priorities as well as the sort of assumed rights, particularly of of white men to do what they want with their um, private property and to make a profit no matter what. It costs ecologically and in the long term, um, also socially. And how much of this, because a lot of this chapter is about the New Deal, how do you assess mm-hmm. the New Deal as a as a as a means of trying to meet this problem? So, uh, you know, when everybody talks about the Dust Bowl in the United States, they and, and even today, the New Deal is held up as this kind of magical moment in the history of U.S. capitalism. And it absolutely, from today's perspective, it seems really radical that the government actually promoted social welfare, that it engaged in widespread conservation work and so on. I think that um, all of that 
is, I mean, we still, we still benefit from some of the New Deal programs that, which have been under attack. I mean, and I mean, they were under attack at the time, starting with Herbert, Herbert Hoover and the conservative movement, and they've been under attack ever since. But I think the New Deal, as, with respect to the soil erosion crisis, was woefully inadequate. And I don't think it's the fault of the um, people working in, in the administration, some of whom had much more um, radical visions of how they could change the sort of um, relationship to the land in, in the Plains region and other places affected by soil degradation. But there were a lot of limitations to the New Deal that other people have studied extensively and it's not, I mean, I, could, I couldn't assess every single program that they, there were so many um, different programs. I write about a lot of them in the, in the book, but I would say overall, with respect to soil erosion, it didn't, it, there wasn't, it was too little too late. And once World War II started, the entire program was kind of abandoned to expand um, agricultural production to meet the war effort. And in the 1950s, when you had sort of massive drought in the region again, um, it was very clear that the soil erosion problem was still there. And they had big dusters, um, not on the scale of the 1930s, um, but the problem came back and it's been recurrent on the plains. In the 1970s, there was another um, massive problem with drought and you saw these kinds of dust storms again. And um, there was actually a study done of just two years ago by scientists at the University of Chicago that showed they did an extensive study of the region and said under climate change, if you, if you had the same kind of drought that you had in the 1930s, agriculture in the region is just as vulnerable today as it was then. So there haven't been changes um, um, at the scale necessary to really address that problem. But one of the reasons you don't see, we, we, I mean, we do see dust storms in the region. There's a lot of um, examples that I give in the book. But So we do see dust storms, but the reason it isn't as bad as it was in the 1930s is we're essentially mining groundwater in the region. So instead of kind of addressing the fact that we're growing crops that shouldn't be grown in such dry conditions, they just started pumping groundwater from the Ogallala Aquifer and it, the depletion of that aquifer is now seen as a major crisis in the region because that's what's sustained and ultimately unsustainable agriculture. And the other thing I would say about the New Deal, and I talk about this in my um, book, and I don't know if it, it gets at the question that you had exactly, but the New Deal was really, it, it reinforced a lot of the racial oppression. I mean, I think racism really limited its rural programs. And so you, I talk about sociologists who at the time said that the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, might as well have been run by the Ku Klux Klan in the sense it was very dominated by Southern planters. And where aid might have gone to um, indigenous or black farmers, there was a lot of resistance to support for um, for, for, for various communities on the and, the USDA appeased the white, um, basically white supremacists in the South and also in the North. And so a lot of the programs were limited in part by um, these white landowners that couldn't, you know, they just couldn't have um, support being um, distributed to these other communities. 
Now, your sixth chapter, and it, it builds somewhat on the framework of criticism that comes out of this New Deal response, is about green capitalism, which I get, my take was that you are at best skeptical of the promise of green capitalism to solve this issue. Why is that? So I think that the Dust Bowl era, the, that colonial period where you had a lot of um, – political and economic elites really concerned with conservation. That's really the origins of what we now call green capitalism. That, and in fact, I would say that there were, it was even more normal at that time to expect um, political and economic elites to be concerned about the environment than it is today, especially given the shift in Republican politics in places like the United States and the kind of anti-environmentalism that has become part of these um, sort of right-wing movements around the globe. And so one of the things that I talk about is the fact that we have all of these proposals today about how to green capitalism, how to improve technology, how to improve policy, so that you can still have, um, basically, so you can fulfill um, the requirements um, necessary to meet the, what they call the triple bottom line, the ecological, um, social, and economic priorities of companies. So a lot of this is discussed today as if the idea was new, that, that the diagnosis that capitalism, you know, and the sort of drive for capital accumulation and, and profit at all costs, that we've only recently understood that this is what's driving the ecological crisis. And now that we know we can do something about it, that companies can change their practices, that we can change policy, we can have these sort of international agreements where we address these global problems. But what I say in the book is what my research shows is these ideas have been around for more than 100 years. And people have been aware of the economic drivers of the fact that our economic activities are driving major ecological crises. And even in the early 20th century, when you did have um, a, a wide range of political and economic elites and policymakers really devoted to the conservation effort. In fact, in, in 1908, um, Theodore Roosevelt hosted a conference of governors focused just on conservation, which is kind of unbelievable, uh, hard to imagine today that our president would have all of the governors in the country come just to talk about how do we address our ecological crises and, and take it really seriously. Like we can't even imagine it today, but that's, that's what's happening more than a hundred years ago. And even with all of those commitments and that widespread concern and it being something that um, was taken seriously, they couldn't, because they were still committed to maintaining the social and economic status quo, um, the basically the rights of the industries to continue to, exploit the land and resources, the rights of farmers to continue to um, exploit the land um, for, for export and profit, whatever efforts they put into place, whatever policies they put into place, just couldn't match the pace and scale of degradation. As you, can't, you can't sort of change policy and, and adjust some sort of, uh, introduce new technologies and let sort of dirty industry continue and not have the crises that we have today. And so one part of my argument is historical is it isn't as if we're just now attempting to, um, green capitalism. Um, we have a hundred years of evidence that if, if that were going to happen, what, are, what are we waiting for? 
why hasn't it happened already? That's one argument. It, it, it can't be said that people haven't understood or that um, industry or you know officials or government officials haven't understood the problems. So if, if we were able to green, if it was able to shift course and actually prioritize um, ecological issues, why hasn't that happened in the past 100 years? That's part of the argument. But another part of the argument is that we just have a lot of evidence today that this isn't the direction um, that companies or um, political elites are taking us. So none of the none of the sort of um, commitments on the part of companies or on the part of countries to address large scale ecological crises like climate change match the scale of the crisis. Even the Paris, I talk about the Paris Climate Agreement, even if everybody, um, all of the countries who signed on to the agreement met all of the goals that they set for themselves, you would still have catastrophic global warming. And that's the best that they could come up with. And that's very terrifying. And, and the reason that I'm talking, it's not, the point isn't just to pick on capitalism. It just happens to be the society we live in. And it um, shapes economic act, it shapes production, economic activities, politics, um, and so on. And so we have to talk about it. But the point that I'm trying to make in that chapter is we cannot continue to expect the same political and economic elites that have gotten made the decisions that got us into the situation that we're in now to get us out of it. They can't do both at the same time. They can't, on the one hand, be promoting the expansion of destructive um, economic practices and then be expected, on the other hand, to rein that in. And I think that we've, we, we just have a, a really long history to tell us that we we've need to look elsewhere um, to address these large-scale crises. Is part of the issue, and I, I'm thinking of corporate social responsibility codes, that so much of the act, action that's framed as in eco-capitalistic terms, voluntaristic. I, in, in essence, it is sort of voluntarily signed on upon. Is that an issue going into this? Yeah, I think there is a strain of mainstream environmental um, mainstream environmentalism that yeah, looks to companies like through programs of corporate social responsibility or through certification, like, you know, fair trade or eco certification processes, expects companies to police themselves. I would say that we actually have a lot of, again, we have a lot of historical evidence to show us there's, that is completely and woefully inadequate um, to address the problems that we have. Some of the same companies that promote corporate social responsibility are also um, in the background supporting um, or, or resisting policy reform that would actually impose regulation on those con- um, companies and transparency on their pro- you know, in their productive um, processes. And so, I think that it would be nice if everybody just policed themselves, and these companies said, "Yeah, you know, we won't engage in these destructive pro- um, practices." But it hasn't. It isn't working, and I think that it's an incredible marketing scheme for many companies, and I think some companies have also made changes in their productive processes that I think are positive, but it's not at the scale necessary to address these um, the ecological crises that mm-hmm. we have. And then you end the book by suggesting a, a sort of new framework. Tell us about that. 
so what really, after doing the research for the book, what really stood out to me and, and just my own familiarity today with environmental politics, what really stood out to me was that we still, the, the ideology of the colonial period that really drove colonial expansion. And W.E.B. Du Bois said, you know, said that the ideology of the period that is that whiteness is ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. I think that we're still really plagued by the ideological legacies of that period so that we've really normalized the, the fact that some parts of the world, especially the browner parts of the world, communities of color, um, poor communities and so on, we've come to, I think in the society, we've just come to normalize that they live in precarious, they, sh- they will live in precarious um and vulnerable conditions. And that has a major impact on environmental politics. Like to me, the fact that we even talk about whether we should reduce emissions or not, or how much it costs without talking about the fact that that we're even having these conversations is basically saying, you know, do we, should we um, sink several countries in the world? Should we impose um, more extreme drought and more extreme flooding and more extreme hurricanes on many parts of the world? Like, should we continue our our economic activities that um, produce toxic pollution that we even have, that those are even questions that we have knowing what it means for so many different parts of the world is to me a very, it's it's a legacy of a very colonial mindset that we even have the right to have that discussion that we even have the right to um, ponder whether we can, um, what scientists tell us, um, say that we can continue activities that are leading to mass extinction of species and um, mass displacement and destruction of communities. I, that conversation being a normal conversation is a real problem and needs to change. And in the United States and around the world, one of the products of this history is that the environmentalism that has developed to try to address these things is is very segregated. So globally, you have a kind of environmental justice kind of movement that's made up of more frontline communities, communities really bearing the brunt of ecological degradation. And then you have mainstream environmental movement in the United States, for example, which is wider, more privileged, um, and more male-dominated. And because that I think, and I, I outlined some of the research um, in the final chapter of my book about why I believe this is true, I think that that mainstream movement is a lot more comfortable with um, the state, the social and economic status quo. They're more of the beneficiaries of that status quo. They're not engaged in politics attempting to challenge that, attempting to challenge the racialized class system that we still live in. And I think as long as the commitment to that system remains in place, um, it's very naive to think that we'll be able to address um, the the ecological crises that we have. So what I argue at the end of the book is that rather than looking to political and economic elites and trying not to offend them in our environmental activism, is we really need to actually... Um, act in solidarity with those on the front lines of ecological degradation. We need to form connections between 
communities that are bearing the brunt who have a real interest in changing the system. And so I talk about, and I can find it very quickly in the book. I talk about the, I don't, have you heard of the three R's of environmentalism, reduce, reuse, recycle? You know, so I, I say that we basically need to move beyond the three R's of mainstream environmentalism to a more core um, four. And this is where I think that we can really um, make a difference. And we can talk about the, you know, practicality of putting this forward, but I think it's important. So I say instead of those three R's of reduce, reuse, recycle that we have, we need to add to, and it should be at the center of environmentalism, these core fours, um, restitution of lands and sovereignty of power to the people, reparations for slavery, stolen labor, genocide, and other past injustice, restoration of earth systems, and revolution, which means moving away from capitalism. And basically, I say that we need to be at this point unapologetically radical, which means in the Latin simply to get to the root of things. And I say that not because I think people should go out and do, and there's an art and science of politics, but the conditions that we're confronting are extreme. And anyone suggesting that we should basically live with those conditions because it costs too much to some people um, for us to change course or suggest that some a greener version of, of a slightly greener version of what we have now is acceptable. Those are, those are extreme arguments. They're leading us down a very extreme and destructive path. And in the face of that, we have to, we have to argue for something wildly different. We just can't continue um, down this course. And I don't think that we need to apologize for wanting something radically different for a more just democratic, um, green or actually green wor- world and that's the argument that i make and we don't have much time to sit around and um tinker with the system um for a lot of communities it's already too late a lot of people have uh, the united nations put out a report not too long ago saying that 25 percent of premature deaths now around the world are due to ecological degradation 25 percent and we're also living through what scientists have called the sixth mass extinction. So we're destroying species. And that, for me, is very profound when you think of the word extinction, that no member of this species can exist anywhere in the world because of our economic activities. That's, that's a profound statement. And the fact that we're sort of talking about whether it costs too much to do something about that just seems at this point absurd. I'm curious, and because you have a connection to the to the region, ultimately that helps spark this work. What's happening in the plains today, and and how are you seeing people there respond to it? So the biggest challenge facing the southern plains today, the original Dust Bowl region, is freshwater scarcity. Um, sometimes I have attended water planning meetings in the region. Texas holds the biggest regional water planning meeting in the United States, and Oklahoma also has them. And these meetings are really interesting because policymakers and scientists um, get together and and talk about the future of water. And in the book, I talk about it, but for the Southwest region, um, scientists studying climate change projections say that for the most arid parts of the region are facing the prospect of 
basically perpetual drought, aridification on an extreme scale, which means um, having access like ground, the um, pressures on groundwater are increasing rapidly and will only increase more over time. And so people in the region are concerned about agriculture. They're also concerned about aridification because of fire. I mean, what we're seeing in California is mm-hmm. some of that um, also affects the Plains region. And so every time I go home, I mean, one of the main things everybody's always worried about is water. Is it going to be another drought year? What's going to happen? And and we know um, that under climate change, the droughts are going to get longer and more intense. And so that's one of the main issues there. But another major issue, and I don't know how familiar everybody is with what's happening there, but Oklahoma, because of the expansion of fracking um, under the Obama administration, Oklahoma has become... When that happened in 2009, when it took off, Oklahoma became the most seismic state in the contiguous 48 states. We went from having two earthquakes a year to two earthquakes per day on average because of this expansion of um, drilling and this kind of extreme energy extraction. And so those are two of the major issues. And then also in the region, a lot of the... um, the the politics that made the Dust Bowl possible, I mean, the influence of industry in state politics and particularly the oil and gas industry in state politics is also a real crisis. Oklahoma is one of the most, um, has one of the worst education systems, one of the most underfunded education systems. <clears throat> it has, it's one of the states with the lowest social mobility. It's one of the worst states in the country for women's health. We imprison, um, but we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. There's just a a lot of the sort of impoverishment that happens in these extractive regions um, is is still a problem there. And so those are all of the things that I worry about for the region and that people there worry about. And so in that sense as well, we could say was was the what did the New Deal and Dust Bowl do um, for people there? when they're still living in such precarious ecological and social mm-hmm. conditions. And I just wanted to conclude by asking something I always ask, what are you thinking of working on next? So I'm really excited about my next project. I've already, I started it more than a year ago. <clears throat> right now the working title is visions and victories towards socio-ecological change. And that, that will probably change. Um, but, one of the things that I'm interested now in both theorizing and thinking about practically is if we have these diagnoses of ecological crises as, as driven by the social and economic forces of capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, how do you address that? What then do solutions look like if we're you know, being critical of, of all of these other approaches? Then what do real solutions look like that actually go against um, the logic of the system or that actually don't reproduce the status quo as a lot of environmental programs currently do, um, that don't um, increase inequality and so on, and that address those issues of justice. So my next project is looking at things that are actually happening right now that I argue actually do address all of the issues that I talk about and that have the potential, if scaled up, to actually represent alternatives to um, the kinds of crises that we see today, both socially and ecologically. And so I have case studies, but also um, 
theoretically just trying to think through what are what are reforms that what are reforms that sort of maintain the social status quo and what are reforms that can actually move us in a more just more democratic more ecological direction that's one of the questions that i take on but the case studies that i'm looking at um, are meant to sort of really ground it in real things that are happening an example that i i looking at um in depth is the case of El Salvador. And I don't know if you know that last year El Salvador became the first country in the world to ban all metals mining. Um, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. So they kicked out where we get all of this bad news all the time, right? Like the ecological crisis is getting worse. It's accelerating. Um, you have the rise of the right. You have mass displacement of people around the world as a result of climate change and, and um, war and so on. So I'm looking for cases where things are actually <clears throat> moving in a different direction. And so that case of El Salvador is really interesting to me because kicking out an entire extractive industry, and I don't know, you know, there, that's being fought, and I don't know where that will wind up. And, and there's obviously imperfections, other things that the people fighting for that hope for and, and are still struggling over. But I think that um, we need those case studies now more than ever to understand how are the changes that are that are taking place, given the context that we um, are operating in today? How are they possible, and what would they look like if um, communities in other parts of the world attempted to take on um, or, or, or attempted to reproduce those struggles? And so that's one of the projects that I'm working on, and I'm also working on a, a project with several colleagues on the history and political economy of environmental education in the United States. Um, focus specifically on the development of environmental that sounds studies. sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading them when they're available. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>